Thank you very much. Good to see you this morning. If you would, turn to Acts chapter 2 again. Hope you're doing well. We want to continue looking at what Paul, excuse me, um, Luke actually says in the book of Acts about what happened during the early church, days of the early church. In Acts chapter 2, we have the account of the coming of the Holy Spirit, and we have Peter's sermon that he preached explaining to the people what happened and why. And there are basically two answers he gives. He tells everyone that the reason why they're hearing people speaking in tongues in their own language and proclaiming the gospel is because God promised to do that back in the book of Joel. And so God was fulfilling his promises. The second reason, he says, this is happening is because God raised Jesus from the dead and Jesus, from the throne of heaven, sent the Holy Spirit to do what he was doing. And so, at this point in his sermon, uh, people are beginning to respond to what uh, Peter has said And so let me read for us just verses 36 um, through 40 today as we continue looking at this passage. I'm spending a little more time on this because it will set the stage for the rest of the book in various ways. And it's a great explanation of how we come to Christ and how we walk as Christians as well. So beginning in verse 36 of Acts chapter 2, it says... Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Again, I'd like to focus on verses 36 and 37, because we're talking about at this point the very first Some people call it the first stage in coming to Christ. Others will call it one of the major strands that takes place when we come to Christ, and that is the conviction of sin. And we note in verse 37 that it says at the beginning, now when they heard this, what Peter was preaching, they were pierced to the heart. The word pierced obviously means what you would think it does, to to stab or to cut. It's, It's a wounding. They were wounded. And Calvin would say, in order to be healed, you have to be wounded. In fact, the reason why we can be saved is because Christ was wounded in our place, that we might be healed. And in order for us to benefit from his wounding, we have to be wounded, that we might be healed through faith in Christ. And that's what the conviction of sin is. It's a wounding. It's a painful thing. It's like surgery. Surgery is a painfully good thing because it's meant to bring healing but it is painful conviction of sin is a painfully good thing that is meant to bring the healing that comes through what christ has done for us in his 
painful substitution on the cross for us. And so when we talk about the conviction of sin, it, it's essential for seeing our need for Christ. So therefore, it's essential for those who aren't believers to become believers. But it's also essential for us as Christians, even after we've come to Christ, because Jesus said, he who is forgiven much loves much. And the rest of our Christian lives, we will begin to see more and more how much we've been forgiven. The conviction of sin will grow as we grow as Christians. And therefore, the only way we can love more is if we're convicted more of our sin and we see how much we've been forgiven. He who has been forgiven much loves much. And in addition to that, he who has forgiven much forgives much. Over and over it tells us in the New Testament that we are to forgive as we have been forgiven. The more we see how much we've been forgiven, the more ready we are to extend forgiveness, even when we've been sinned against greatly, because we begin to see just how greatly we have sinned against God. And so the conviction of sin is important both for unbelievers as well as believers. And that's one reason why I'm spending more time on it, and especially in light of our culture. The whole idea of sin is being redefined and even ignored in so many ways. And so what I want to focus on this morning, or at least begin focusing on, is the third aspect of the conviction of sin, which is that it, re- it exposes our rejection of God, that that's what is happening. So if you notice, they were pierced to the heart. And why were they pierced to the heart? It says in verse 36, Peter says at the very end of his sermon, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So what do you think was going through their minds at that point? Well, at least something along the lines of, okay, Lord means God. You're telling me that the Jesus who was crucified is the God of the Old Testament, the God of the covenant, the God that we're supposed to be worshiping and honoring. And Christ means Savior, means Messiah, means the only one who can actually enable us to be a part of the kingdom of God. Therefore, for them, that would mean that Peter was saying, you have rejected the God that you think you've been worshiping all along. And you've rejected the only hope of salvation that you've been looking forward to all along. That kind of conviction had to be an overwhelming kind of conviction. Indeed, it had to be along the lines of a story that I've told before about a young man who was graduating from high school and he really wanted a particular car for his graduation. On the day of his graduation, his dad gave him a a package, a present. He unwrapped it and it was a Bible. And he immediately threw it down and left in anger. Because he didn't want a Bible, he wanted a car. And he fully expected that his dad was going to give him that car. And so he rejected the gift that he was given, and he left and he never returned to speak to his dad again. His dad dies, he goes back and begins going through the um, uh, possessions that his dad left behind, and he finds the Bible that he had been given on that graduation day, and he opens it up, and inside is the key to a new car, the very car that he wanted. 
At that moment, he realized that in rejecting what he had been given by his father, he had rejected his heart's desire, the very thing that he longed for and wanted. That had to be something like what they felt at that point, that they had rejected what the father had given them in his son, and they realized that they had rejected the very thing that their heart desired. They had longed, so to speak, for the Messiah. And he, they had rejected him. And so at the heart of sin is an understanding that we have rejected God. And one of the things that I want to do is to talk more about the various ways in which that takes place, not only in this situation with them, but in our own lives as well. And so um, let me begin in your notes with uh, just thinking about what took place in the rejection of Jesus, not only in the death of Jesus, but in the rejection of Jesus with regard to his life. And the first thing I'd like to highlight is Jesus was God in the flesh and they rejected him. And I want to talk a little bit more about how that looks. Um, Probably the first thing to say is they never saw Jesus as God. So they weren't consciously rejecting God in their own minds. And that's very important. It's important to realize that we can be rejecting God even when we're not consciously thinking we're rejecting God. And yet, he was being rejected on the basis of association, you could say. There's a story about um, a man who came back from war in World War One, and he went to see his pastor, and he said, I'm afraid when I go back home... Um, that, you know, I'm going to have a hard time being faithful to Christ. He came to Christ uh, during the war, but his family and his friends weren't Christians. And so this pastor said, well, what you need to do is you need to tell uh, people of your faith in Christ. And so he committed at that moment to confess Jesus right off the bat whenever he met anybody as he went back home. And so he met this girl right at the train station and immediately brought up the fact that he had become a Christian. And whereas initially she welcomed him, was glad to see him, all of a sudden her countenance changed. She quickly left the conversation. Then he met a, a buddy of his after that, and he immediately talked about how he had come to Christ. And this buddy who was expecting him to join in the partying that they were doing immediately changed in his attitude and walked away. And it happened like that over and over and over again. And this is what someone commented on what had happened. He had become peculiar, religious, and who knows, they may even have called him crazy. What had he done? Nothing but confess Christ. The same confession that had aligned him with Christ had separated him from those who did not want Jesus Christ as Savior and who, in fact, did not even want to hear about him. He aligned himself with Christ and by association was, was rejected. What did Jesus do? He aligned himself with God, the very God they thought they were worshiping, but he aligned himself truly with God and as a result... They rejected him. It says in Mark 8.31, And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes 
and be killed, and after three days rise again. And then in Luke 10, Jesus said, The one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, like the story I just told. But he also said, And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me, rejects God. He who rejects me rejects God. And so even though they were rejecting Jesus and would not have thought that they were truly rejecting God, that's exactly what they were doing. In Exodus 20, we have the Ten Commandments. And I want to bring out as I do this uh, some things regarding uh, how there's a sense in which you could argue that they broke all Ten Commandments when they killed Jesus. Or at least in terms of how they responded to Jesus leading up to his death. The very first commandment says, You shall have no other gods before me. What is a god? Well, one of the easiest ways for me to define what a God is is that it's the one that you ultimately look to for your help and your happiness. It's the one you ultimately look to for your help and your happiness and therefore the one you trust and obey. If you're looking to someone ultimately for help and happiness in some some way, shape, or form, you're going to be seeking to trust them and obey them or conform to what you think they want you to be. And in the first commandment, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other person, no other thing in your life that you're looking to for help and happiness besides me, in addition to me, and rival to me, against me, is what that means. And so how should we identify with those who put Jesus to death in terms of, the idea of how do we also reject God in this sense. Well, we could say we reject God as revealed in Jesus, because that's who Jesus is. He's the revelation of God to us. We reject God as revealed in Jesus when we refuse to trust and obey him alone or ultimately. Let me just try to flesh that out a little more practically, because like I said, it's very easy for us to say, well, I don't think I reject God. How do, how do I reject God? Just like the Pharisees and the religious leaders would not have thought that they were rejecting God at all. Well, there's a story in Numbers 11, which you may remember. In Numbers 11, it talks about the people. They're in the wilderness. They've been brought out of Egypt, and they're complaining about all they get every day is this manna from heaven. And they won't meet They want God to feed them differently. And so Moses is wrestling with this, and Moses is saying, you know, you've put this burden on me. What am I going to do? And so God gives Moses some help, and then he says that he will give them the meat that they want. And it says in Numbers 11, 19, and 20, God says to the people, you shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? So think about that. It's a very practical situation where they don't like their circumstances. They want God to provide meat and all he's sending is manna. And God says to Moses and to them, let me tell you what's really going on here. This isn't just a matter of 
disliking your diet. This is a matter of rejecting me. It's a personal rejection of God. Do you ever think we um, do the same thing? Do you ever complain about God's providence in your life? About what he is giving you or what he isn't giving you? But do you see it as not just a matter of, I just wish things were different. But do you see that most of the time, it's an actual rejection of the God who's sovereign over your circumstances? And so when God says, you may not think you're rejecting me, uh, let's think about that a little more. Because I'm the one who's giving you the manna and not giving you the meat. And you're very unhappy about that. Do you see that that's a rejection not only of what I'm giving you, but of me who's in charge of that very thing? You see the same kind of thing, um, not only in the sense of a trust, it's a trust issue. It's saying complaining is an issue of trust. Am I really trusting God to give me what? I really need and and what is really going to be best for me or do I complain about it and reject him as being wise and loving? That's the first story. The second story is one that you can see in 1 Samuel. You can go and read that later on in chapter 8 where Samuel is getting old. He has two sons. They're beginning to act as judges over Israel, but they're not up to snuff, so to speak. They're not as godly as Samuel is. And so the people began saying, we want a king. Give us a king. And God says this to Samuel. Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. It can be very easy to think, well, the people are just trying to make a wise decision. Samuel's sons don't look to be as godly as Samuel. And so we want things to be different. We, wanna, we want someone else to rule over us. And God says, let me tell you what's really going on here. It's not just an issue of the character of these sons. It's an issue of you rejecting my rule over you. You're rejecting the authorities in your life. And you're basing it on things you think are good reasons to reject them. But don't you see that in that rejection, you're rejecting me. So my point is, in sharing those stories and highlighting all this, is that the rejection of God can be a very subtle thing. And that's why we need the Bible, we need the law of God, the light of the truth, to expose just how much we've sinned against God, that we might know that we've been forgiven much, that we might love much and forgive much. Well, the second thing, and I'll try to do this in the last 10 minutes here, is not only did they reject Jesus and God revealed in Jesus, as we've talked about, but Jesus revealed the Father, the one true God, And amazingly enough, they hated what they saw. It's almost like seeing a newborn baby and saying, oh, that's hideous. Or like seeing a beautiful sunset and saying, oh, 
Is that the best you can do? It's totally unbelievable, if you really think about it. Um, I don't know about you, but some people have encountered famous people that they really wanted to meet. And I'm not going to talk about specifically these famous people, because that's not my point. But uh, there's one person who says, you know, I was really, um, I really admired this one man who played on this TV show at a certain time, and I really wanted to meet him, and so I moved to this place in uh, Colorado, and I knew that he hung out there, and I was really hoping to meet this guy one day, and finally I worked at a hotel, and I met him, and the way I met him was I was going into this room, this ballroom, to deliver a message, and he came bursting through the door, and he ran right over me, and all he did was Uh, show a look of annoyance, and flew on by. Never even said, excuse me, I'm sorry, can I help you? Are you all right? Are you hurt? And this woman said, well, that immediately cured me of any crush that I had on him. Or someone else has said, you know, we were in this restaurant in Canada, And we happened to see this famous actor that we really love. He's been in so many movies that we enjoy. Saw him at this other table. Didn't want to interrupt his dinner. So we waited at the exit when we saw that he was calling for his check. And we just wanted to speak to him on the way out. And as he leaves, he doesn't even give us a chance to speak. He just says, not right now, honey. Not right now, honey. He just walks on by. Obviously, they too said, we were a little disappointed in what we saw, and in what we experienced. Now, I want to apply that to Jesus, who's a very different case. Jesus shows up, and he's everything that you could hope for and dream for. And yet, he was still not what they expected, and he was not what they wanted. We can understand that with sinful actors and things like that, that they're not as great and wonderful as they might be on the big screen when we meet them. But if we actually meet God, do you think we would actually be disappointed? Would we we think, well, he's not what I expected him to be. He's not what I wanted him to be. It says in John 15, Jesus says, If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. In John 15, it also says, He who hates me hates my father also. You can't reject Jesus, hate Jesus, be dissatisfied with Jesus, And still be okay with God. It's interesting that in the second commandment, it says in Exodus 20, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Why is it wrong to make an image of God, like the golden calf in the Old Testament? 
Because whatever you make will not accurately portray God. It will ultimately, one way or the other, misrepresent God. And there, and also, to make a God of your own construction, so to speak, also, in some sense, implies that the way God has revealed himself is inadequate and that we really want a different God than the God who's revealed himself in the way that he's revealed himself. Another way to put it is, personally, we can think in terms of we reject God as revealed in Jesus when we want him to be different than he is. That's the heart of making an image, making an idol. Whether we say it reflects the true God or not, it's ultimately the idea that I want something different than what's been revealed to me, as it's been revealed to me. There's a story in Luke 19 where Jesus talks about a man who goes away to receive a kingdom. And it says in Luke 19:14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. We want someone else to reign over us. So what's the implication? The implication is we reject God not only because we expect him to be different, but because we don't want him as he is to reign over us. We want a God maybe who's a little less exacting, a little less holy, a little less demanding. Um, uh, We don't like some of the doctrines we find in the Bible. We don't like some of the things that he has said and done. And so we want a different God to rule over us. And we could be like these citizens who are very hostile to God. That's a form of hatred. But hatred doesn't always come in terms of hostility. It also comes in terms of indifference. I can just be indifferent to God. It's just like in Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and, and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. You have a, you have a decision. Am I going to look to money and possessions for my help and my happiness, or am I going to look to God? I don't have to be hostile toward God. I can just be indifferent to God in those terms. I can just look to money for my help and my happiness, and my indifference is a hatred toward God. Uh, It's interesting, Friedrich Nietzsche, Nietzsche, or however you pronounce his name there, he he uses this uh, parable to talk about how you could say, at least from our perspective, how we can identify with the people in Acts chapter 2 who Peter says, you murdered God. You killed God. In this story, he says, Have you not heard of the madman who lit a lamp in the bright morning and went to the marketplace crying ceaselessly, I seek God, I seek God. There were many among those standing there who didn't believe in God, so he made them laugh. Is God lost? One of them said. Has he gone astray like a child? Said another. Or is he hiding? Has he gone on board ship and immigrated? So they laughed and shouted to one another. The man sprang into their midst and looked daggers at them. Where is God? He cried. I will tell you. We have killed him. You and I. We are all his killers. But how have we done this? How could we swallow up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the horizon? 
What will we do as the earth is set loose from its sun? Chuck Colson explains what he thinks Nietzsche means by telling that story. Nietzsche's point was not that God does not exist, but that God has become irrelevant. Men and women may assert that God exists or that he does not, but it makes little difference either way. God is dead, not because he doesn't exist, but because we live, play, procreate, govern, and die as though he doesn't. We live our lives, we make our decisions, we have our lifestyles, and we do what we do, largely irrespective of what God says, who God is, what God thinks. And he says that's the real problem with killing God. That we may not have done it with our own hands, and the Jews that he was talking to didn't necessarily... Well, they certainly didn't do it with their own hands because the Romans actually did it with their own hands. And yet he said, you crucified Jesus. In order for us to truly love much, the God who has saved us through Jesus, we need to see just how often we reject him and how we show hostility and hatred toward him, at least in the sense that we disregard him in our day-to-day lives in so many ways. And even as Christians, we still do that. And Charles Simeon would say, there are two things that I need to maintain a proper balance in my life, a sense of my sinfulness and a sense of my acceptance with God through Jesus. He would say, we need both of those things, lest we be very, very proud or lest we be overwhelmed with despair. We need to be humbled And we need to be happy and hopeful through that balance. May God help us more and more in that regard. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much that you have wounded your son that we might be healed. And you wound us that we might trust in the healing of your son. Father, may we truly embrace the same kind of attitude that we We long to be humbled more and more by our sinfulness, to see it more and more as it really is. Not that we might be in despair, but that we might love you more and see how much we've been forgiven, that we might rest more and rejoice more in the Savior that you've provided for us. And may we always apply the blood of Christ as we see our sin, that we might not be overwhelmed and in despair as you show us what you've saved us from. Father, may we grow in love for you. May we grow in forgiveness to others as we see how much we've been forgiven. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray, amen.